Thank you for joining us in our study of the book of Genesis, entitled The Origin of Reason. Before I get started regarding creation, I'd like to cover a few topics that will let you know exactly how I'm approaching our study on the book of Genesis. In our day of cancel culture, what I'm saying may pop up in days to come and serve as a personal confession that will be used as an accusation to condemn me, but it's still important to let you know where I stand before we start the study. Of course, if this is going to be the case, then I want to be very clear in what I'm saying. We look at Genesis 1-1, and it says, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, there was God. Two topics are introduced here. First, we see time. There's not a great deal to say regarding time other than that it had a beginning, and it will definitely have an end. And this isn't a, a, a random statement. Scientists universally promote this idea, and science teaches that time is represented by motion and change, and as time passes, seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years, decades, century, and even millennia, that's all time. That's how we measure time, and we mark time. We have watches that have seconds hands. We have clocks that mark time. My time is limited. I had a beginning, and I'm going to have an end. The end of time is inevitable. In the general theory of relativity, the concept of time begins with the Big Bang, and you can't go any further than that, according to a guy named Kerry Ingvist. He's a professor of cosmology at the University of Helsinki. Now, he's given a lot of time to studying this, and so the conclusions he arrives at are studied conclusions. He goes on to say that the universe emerged some 13.7 billion, that's with a B, years ago. Before that, all matter was packed into an extremely tiny dot. Now this is what he wrote, this is what he said, this is what he teaches his students, and this is what he wants us to believe. That dot also contained the matter that later became the sun, the earth, the moon, and the heavenly bodies. And all this tells us about the passing of time. This is according to Mr. Kerry Inkvest, professor of cosmology at the University of Helsinki. This also is what our children are being taught in the United States public educational system and what our university system promotes. This is not what we're taught in scripture. This is antithetical to, to scripture. Now we have to understand that this is part of man's rebellion towards God. You see, we must understand the true fact of the matter from a Christian perspective is that men no longer see fit to acknowledge God. They give hearty approval to any and to all who practice these things as well. The overriding issue, which we will discuss in detail in the coming days, is Satan's desire to discredit God. Men not only have accepted his radical vision, but they seek to enhance it with years of studies to substantiate the ideas that Satan lays out. They're chasing the wind primarily because Satan he doesn't use facts. I've mentioned this before. 95% of every decision we make is based on emotions. So when they come to the conclusion of their years of study, they literally believe in unsupported lies, and they declare to the world that they are following science. By the grace of Almighty God, I will not do this. The second thing that is brought up in Genesis 1 is this, God. It is God that created the heavens and the earth, and by Him are all things created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Also, we're told that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, this irritates those that hold to the idea of science. They don't care if you believe in Jesus. They don't care what religion you hold to as long as you agree with their postulates, as long as you embrace what they say as well. 
In the book of Isaiah, we're told, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. That's in Isaiah 45, 18. All things were made by God, as we're told in the book of John, the Gospel of John. It says all things came into being through him, and from apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Lift up your eyes and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now this stands in stark contradiction to modern science, and I make no effort to reconcile the two, mainly because the two concepts cannot be reconciled. Now some men seek to appease the scientific community. They become complicit in fashion of bringing confusion into the church, even though they are noted scholars and theologians who study the scripture. They suggest that scripture allows for their ideas. This is a lie, and it's not even possible. What they attempt to do is introduce their concept by refusing to acknowledge God as the creator, per se. Rather than create, God allowed things to form. This idea is inserted between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. This is generally referred to as the gap theory. It was between these two verses that the Big Bang occurred. The gap theory was originally a concept attributed to a guy named Simon or Simon Episcopus. Episcopus, I guess that's how you say it, was a Dutch theologian who was trying to explain when exactly it was that the angels fell from heaven. And so, arriving at no conclusion from a reading of scripture, he had to push Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 apart, allowing for some space so he could create his concept. So, he pushed these two apart and made a little room and stuck in there this idea of time that allowed for Satan to fall. It opened up the door for a lot of time to come in. Episcopius' idea was popularized by a man named Thomas Chalmers in the early 1800s. Chalmers was a famous Scottish theologian and the founder of the Free Church of Scotland. So he had a position of authority and ascendancy. He was over a lot of people. A lot of people sat in his churches and listened to his theology. The gap theory, as this is known, incorporates three fundamental lines of thinking. One, a belief in the literal view of Genesis. I mean, you can accept Genesis as a whole. Uh, you can read it from 1 all the way to chapter 50 and, and just accept it. That's good. It also says, number two, it's a belief in an extremely long but undefinable age of the earth. Okay, so it allows for a great deal of time from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2. There's a big chasm of time there. Number three, it's a belief that biblical truth complements secular science. For this space between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 allows acceptable explanations of geological science and the evolution of mankind. And we'll look at that in depth in upcoming studies, but keep in mind that evolution requires, it has to have a multi-billion year calendar. Without this amount of time, the entire evolutionary concept put forth by Charles Darwin in his book, Origin of Species, collapses, and a whole field of science and explanation of mankind goes away. This is also taught as the ruin and reconstruction view. Now, for those of you who are listening and who are truly concerned, I would alert you to be very careful in using the study aids provided by the Schofield Reference Bible or Dake's Annotated Reference Bible. Both of these present creation in this manner. They call it the ruin and reconstruction view. The chief desire of these men was to harmonize Genesis with secular science and thereby remove conflict. 
They wanted everything to be in step. They wanted the church to appear to be in step with contemporary trends. But after all, this view was not a new concept uh, to Chalmers. It was developed back in the 16-1700s under Episcopus. So the Free Church of Scotland held to this, and Chalmers was a well-accepted theologian, so he gave a great deal of credence to this concept. To be fair, in looking at this, truly scripturally-minded men do not hold to or promote evolution. They do not. Even though some hold to the gap theory, they are opposed to the evolutionary concepts. They can't accept the idea that God created the earth in six days. That's where they have their problems. They believe in the old earth. I believe in the young earth. Now this would suggest that their idea, in my opinion, this suggests that their idea of God's ability has to fit in with their understanding. Because it's very difficult to wrap your mind around anything that would say God could create the entire earth and all that we know, the fish, the birds, the air, the water, the trees, the land, everything that we see, even including man, that God could do this in six days is very difficult for men to wrap their heads around. This would suggest definitely that God is limited in their understanding. He's having to be brought down and managed so our minds can hold on to it. Now, if this is the logic being used, then when somebody is challenged regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we could not say a whole lot, because we'd have to smooth it out in order to make it logical and acceptable by the human mind. Who can accept the idea that one man died, he was crucified, he was put into a grave, he rose again from the dead? That's a concept that if you think about it, we can't get through our heads. A man rose from the dead. That is really something that we need to understand. So, we can't just smooth out things in order to make them palatable. We have to create another idea, another explanation. Why? Because we don't want to see conflict. We want to bring peace and harmony. So we'll smooth out the rough edges and make it acceptable. The idea was rejected by the Greeks that Christ rose from the dead, but Paul did not back down one iota. He didn't back up at all. That is the gospel, that Christ came. He walked and lived among us. He was crucified. He died and was buried, and he rose again the third day. That is the essential of the gospel. So rather than suffer the mocking of men, we'll have to back up and smooth things out and make it more acceptable. And the only way to reconcile the resurrection of Christ so that men could understand it is somehow smooth it out and make it palatable. The fact is that scripture teaches us, and this is not to be watered down, men refuse to acknowledge God in their thinking. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this is according to answers in Genesis, and they summarize the gap theory in this manner. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the far distant, dateless past, God created a perfect heaven and a perfect earth. Satan was the ruler of the earth, which had peopled, been peopled by a race of men without any souls. Eventually, Satan, who dwelled in the Garden of Eden, composed of minerals, Ezekiel 28, rebelled by desiring to become like God, according to Isaiah 14. Because of Satan's fall, Sin entered the universe and brought on the earth God's judgment in the form of a flood, indicated by the waters of Genesis 1-2. And then a global ice age came when the light and the heat from the sun were somehow inexplicably removed. All the plant, animal, and human life disappeared. The fossils upon the earth today date from this time which they refer to as 
Lucifer's flood, and it doesn't bear any genetic relationship with the plants and animals and fossils living upon the earth today. Now this all has been written up in a book called The Unformed and Unfilled by a man named Arthur Custance out of Brookville, Canada. And you can find this in his book on page 7. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was without form and void. Western biblical commentaries written before the belief in uniformitarianism basically says there's a uniformity to everything. And it became a widely accepted view in the 1700s. And therefore, before the theory of a long old earth became popular, Bible commentaries postulated no gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. It never was heard of before. But then to equate the ruin and reconstruction theory, it was they didn't have any ground for that. Uniformitarianism is where they try to marry science into everything, and we're supposed to follow the science. This is part of progressive thinking. Progressive thinking lays down that the fossils are billions of years old, and it's used as a basis for the evolutionary theory. Now, certainly, some commentaries proposed intervals of various lengths of time for reasons relating to Satan's fall, but never proposed a ruin and reconstruction situation or a pre-Adamite world. There's nothing in Scripture that allows for any human beings on the earth prior to Adam. If you think that way, it is strictly without any foundation or fact. It's conjecture. It's an idea. It's a hypothesis that has no basis. However, with the increased acceptance of uniformitarianism, which is the marriage of science and biblical thought, many theologians are urged to reinterpret the book of Genesis. And I'll tell you this, the book of Genesis, chapter 1 through 11, are the most contested chapters in all of Scripture. If you can knock those out, you knock the foundation of all of Scripture on its ear. What I want to point out is this. Scripture is provided for our defense. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Men, either intentionally or out of ignorance, fall into Adam's sin of rejecting God and choose to reject truth as presented, and therefore they manufacture their personal views and seek to exalt those views over the Word of God. There is a battle that's waging against any and every word found in Scripture. We don't realize that. By and large, the church has been lulled to sleep and is totally unaware of what is going on scripturally or spiritually. It's a battle that involves men, but it is primarily a battle between God and Satan. And we cannot make light of this. A lot of people kind of poo-poo the idea and make light of it. We cannot. This is the primary battle. This is the major issue. And we, you and I, are caught in the middle. The only light we have to understand this battle is God's Word, the Bible. Satan is seeking to distort it, smudge it, confuse it, discredit it, however he can do it. He does not care about you. He's not concerned about your feelings or your emotions. He is concerned about discrediting and destroying God. That is his goal, and if he can use you to do it, great. He is seeking to eliminate God from the thinking of men. He's putting down ideas and men are picking them up and playing with it, thinking on it, developing it, rewording it, polishing it, and then presenting it to others. And so now we have these ideas of the working groups of America promoting socialism. We have these ideas that God is dead, according to Nietzsche. We have these ideas that Christianity is a joke. The Bible is just a book of fantasies. Men have picked up these ideas and done great damage. We can no longer pray in school. We can't read our Bibles. Children get sent home if they bring their Bibles to school. These are true issues. Understanding the truth, then, is essential. I've had discussions where somebody would say, well, you have your opinion and I have mine. You see things your way and I see them my way. So we agree to disagree. 
Well, that's fine when we're considering subjective issues. I like brown shoes. You like black shoes. I don't wear cowboy boots. You love cowboy boots. I like to buy hats. You don't like hats. Okay, that's fine. You have your opinion, and I have mine. But when it comes to truth, there can only be one truth. And the issue is not, what do you think, or what does Spurgeon say? The issue is, what does the Word of God have to say? The tendency we have within the church is to quote from a particular author in order to give credence to a particular view we're espousing. Thomas Chalmers is a good example. This guy was no neophyte. He was no lightweight scholar. You invoke his name and people tend to listen. Why? Because they know his stature and his reputation. This, however, does not mean his views are biblically sound. Did Chalmers hold a superior position of authority over Scripture? No, he does not, and he did not. Is your invocation of Scripture not sufficient when you're presenting your case? It is, but you're not sure of that. That's why you want to say, well, Chalmers says, or Spurgeon says. There's nothing wrong with invoking a name and inciting the knowledge of another individual, but you better be confident in what the Scripture has to say, and not what that guy has to say. I'm not saying we should ever neglect studied men who have stood in the fire and endured. When I challenged one man's view at a gathering, his defense was, that's what I've been taught since I was a kid, and you're going to tell me that I'm wrong? That was his defense. I'm presenting to the best of my ability the truth of God's Word in hopefully a concise and expositional manner. I'll wave a red flag when danger is present, and I'll question those who cast shadows and rely on conjecture. Chalmers pulled his ideas from a guy in the past that was a hundred years earlier. He did not find what he held in Scripture. It was not there. Just because a man holds a preeminent position and wills a degree of authority, holds a Ph.D. and has all kinds of initials after his name, if his argument is wrong, he is wrong. You do not have to have a Ph.D. to hold truth and to represent truth. You have the right and the obligation to search and determine for yourself what the truth is, and don't let anybody tell you different. If a man has a book in print, this does not mean he is correct in all that he has to say. If this were the case, then we should embrace Robespierre for his effort to purify France, or we should praise Charlemagne for his theological contributions to the early church. If you're a Christian, born of God, you've been provided with the truth of God in the Bible. The Bible, in the original languages, is the verbal, plenary-inspired Word of God. It is without error, and it's the only source and guide for holy living. The problem comes when we begin to deviate from it and take into account what men have to say, either beside or above what Scripture has to say. I desire to help you, whoever's listening to this, and I would invite you to examine anything I have to say. Challenge it. That's fine. What we're going to do is continue in our studies. I'm going to look in our next time together, I'm going to look at the issue of theistic evolution and then uh, maybe a couple other subjects before we actually begin in uh, the ideas of creation presented in Scripture. So we're going to do all this as we continue in our study, The Origin of Reason. I want to thank you very much for participating in this study, and I'm glad that you've joined us, and I hope that you continue as we continue through the study of Genesis to understand the origin of reason. Thank you very much.